Mortgage Women Magazine. It's where women's voices are heard. Find it free at www.mortgagewomenmagazine.com. Because diversity is where you see strength, right? We know that in science. We know that in biology. We know that in business. This is Gated Communities, where we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in the mortgage industry. Most of you probably know, without studying psychology, that a good salesman is likable. If someone likes you, they trust you more, and they'll talk about you to their friends and family. That's free marketing. Relatability is a key factor in being likable. But what if you're trying to build relationships with communities that are different from your own? Malia Lazu, CEO of the Lazu Group and lecturer at MIT, coaches company leaders how to do this all the time. One tried and true solution is having a more diverse staff. But how do you build a more diverse staff and ensure everyone gets along? How do you communicate with certain communities without coming off as insincere? How can you be more likable? Thank you so much for Malia for joining us. Um, to start, uh, just to kind of go over what we'll be talking about today, um, creating a, a diverse industry is the focus of this conversation. And you do a lot of work in that area, trying to promote diversity within companies. And we're going to talk about why is that important? Why is creating a diverse industry important? Because typically on this podcast, we talk about how to help underserved borrowers. And you know, the most important thing that's come up time and time again, uh, you know, on every episode of this podcast is being able to build trust um, with certain communities that you're trying to reach. And what really helps is relatability. So if you are, you know, a, a Hispanic uh, broker and you work with that'll come to your advantage if you want to work with Hispanic clients, you know, if you speak the same language and things of that nature. And of course, if you are not Hispanic, we encourage you to learn about their culture and, you know, try to figure out ways um, to bridge communication with them um, and going over strategies like that. So just to kind of introduce yourself to our audience, why don't you start off by explaining what you do and how your work coincides with banking, the banking and finance industries? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being on this topic. You know, I think it's Mm -hmm. so important that we look at how do we authentically diversify the financial industry. And, you know, you have to just look at retail banking statistics and see that 50% of Black and Latino families are underbanked um, versus 19% of white families. And I think that stat right there highlights that it's not about being unbankable or it's not about a class issue. It's about, you know, people, um, people can sell to people who they know. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's evident that bankers know a lot more white families than they do black and brown families. And that's really what we need to figure out because we're leaving money on the table. And that's really the work that I do. So, um, you know, as a former bank president, um, I now work with banks to help them understand how to tie DE&I to the profitability and to the P&L of a company, because so often companies have these intentions but the feelings of the intention sit in charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, diverse teams are 34% more profitable. Um, diverse teams are 70% more likely to successfully enter a new market. 
And these are McKinsey studies. These are Deloitte studies, right? These aren't the NAACP studies, right? Um, you know, in Silicon Valley, women-led teams have 21% higher, um, you know, patent productions than male-led teams, right? So this idea that your DE&I should sit in charity is foolhardy, right? It's foolish. You're, you're leaving money on the table. Um, you know, diversity is actually a profitable endeavor and that's what businesses do. And so doing diversity as business, I find is the best way to build a sustainable DE&I effort. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like that you bring up those statistics. There are plenty of studies that show that, you know, with more a more diverse workforce, you get a lot more profitability, um, a lot more, uh, a lot better performance wise. And time and time again, we're, we're shown that. So if your ears don't perk up with uh, let's help this community, maybe they'll perk up with do you. Would you like to make more money? And sometimes right. that and, is and what it gets should people be interested. Both, right. Yeah. Because because communities of color have business value. Mm-hmm. And I think it's us shifting our understanding, right? So, um, but if I could just say one more thing too, is that these younger generations feel differently, right? Even the white community. So like what we see with a lot of our clients, whether they're investment firms or banks, is that they have, you know, clients who aren't of color, right? Let's say, you know, white clients, they don't want to walk into an all white firm, mm-hmm. right? We have clients who are, you know, who are saying that people are coming up to them saying, I'm LGBTQ. Like, I don't want, you know, um, I don't want your hetero, you know, narrative of how I'm supposed to be thinking about investing and, and things like that, you know, so th- you're not, it doesn't only help with getting new markets, mm-hmm. but if we look at future proofing your company, you're going to have to talk to non-people of color, right? You're going to have to yep. talk to, um, you know, because these millennials and Gen Zers, they're not having it in the same right. way that baby boomers were having. And that's definitely part of our conversation, talking about the demographic of Gen Z. And, you know, they're going to be the first time home buyers entering the market pretty soon. And a lot of them are eager to get into the market, you know, quickly. So how do you market to those people? You know, so, and we're going to talk about strategies on social media, things you should and shouldn't say, um, you know, that might turn off some of these people. And we'll definitely get more into that. But first, I want to ask you, why is it your mission to increase diversity in in the industries. I'm curious if there's any specific experience or someone you know that went through something that set you on this path. That is such a great question because when I became a bank president, no one believed it. Like that there's <laughs> actually a quote um in the in an article about it that someone said Malia Laws. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, I'm a community organizer by trade. Um, and I got into business, uh, you know, gosh, I don't want to say hump, but over a decade ago. Um, and I got into business from being an organizer. And what I saw was as I was trying to make change, right? And as we were trying to work with governments and, you know, work with community-based organizations, that business would sort of come in and out. And they... What we saw with business partners was that they had this wonderful intention, right? They, you know, and, I, and I'll, I'll say that most of them meant it, right? I, I don't think that most corporations want to be sexist or want to be racist. It's just in their DNA and they need to 
exercise that, right? They need to irrigate that wound. And they're trying to figure out how to do that in the least painful way, right? Um, And so what I realized was that no one was actually having honest conversations. You know, like I would hear DE&I consultants and they didn't have, and this is again, at the time, I think, you know, the, the industry has evolved, but at the time, the conversations were centering white discomfort, right? The conversations were, I'm going to want you to continue this contract. So I'm going to tell you, you're doing a great job, you know, rather than looking at your employee survey and seeing polls like, oh, it looks like everyone knows how to answer the test, right? Like it looks like everyone's participating. But if you look at it with an equity lens and if you index everything, yes, right? Black and brown people might be above 70%. But white people are at 90, right? So so what what does that mean, right? And and having those conversations. And I I felt that as an organizer and as someone who was very comfortable holding this power dynamic in a place that is dignified for all parties, right? Which is really your job as an organizer. You're you're not trying, you know, you can't embarrass your target, right? Now you can pressure them, right? You can build tension in, in the conversation, but you know, to just make them feel like crap, they're just going to walk away from the table, right? <laughs> like, and so I was very accustomed of, you know, sort of sitting in this space and, and helping people negotiate power shifts. And um, that's what I felt was really missing. Um, so when I got started and when I launched my company out of MIT, um, it was, you know, it was really about working with any CEO. We were really industry agnostic in the beginning. Um, but again, being an organizer... Um, we started to get some banks and we started to get some um, real estate developers as clients. They were relationships I had. And um, so I was like, I want to target banking and real estate because those are the two, if you will, our two original problems, <laughs> right? Slavery, genocide of the indigenous people, right? Um, a lot of things funded real estate and banking, right? Mm-hmm. That that made us a profitable economy in a way that we should be repentant for, <laughs> right? If you if you ask me. Um and so having that naturally happen was, you know, was great. And then one of my clients actually asked me to come on. And that's when I was able to actually, you know, be a bank president and come in and and actually move the levers. Um, and so after, you know, I knew I wasn't a banker, right? So after um after that experience, I went back to consultancy, you know, but I, I would say that, you know, it, I mean, feeling the exclusion that I feel as a, you know, black woman, as an Afro Latina, you know, as someone who has, um, you know, a black father, black, right? Like, I mean, you, you feel it and you take it personally, right? Because you, it's happening to you. Um, but really, you know, I think my entry into DE&I and, and specifically into financial services is that I felt that if we could get that right, right, um, if we could close the wealth gap, if we could stop excluding people the way we exclude them, we, we would give people a much more honest shot at equity. Right, in a way that other industries just can't do. Maybe education, but still, if you can't get a mortgage, you're not building equity, you can't do a lot of things, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's really why I um, I, I enjoy and um, take very seriously, you know, the work that we do in financial services. And that's what brought me there. So mm-hmm. sorry, I know that was a long... No, that's perfect. That's perfect that you bring that up as well, because we've seen in studies that 
you know, these other demographics, they do have money, but not a lot of them are invested into assets, which um, goes into building generational wealth and not be, you know, coming from generations of renters rather than homeowners. Um, So they're not allowed. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and I think I, you know, like, I think the, you know, this idea of the racial wealth gap was created by red line. Bottom line. Right. I mean, you can give me other other actions at the margins, but the way Americans build wealth is through home ownership and redlining ensured that black and brown communities would a not be able to, and B if they are able to not at the same rates. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, when we look at the wealth gap today, we see that it's because of how banks define the five C's, Mm -hmm. right. It's because of, what you decide to choose. So for example, if I have been taking money away from you generationally, and then I ask you for collateral, I'm being inequitable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, really, I'm being really insensitive, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and I have other words as well, right? But the idea that I would say you could only play here if you have something that I've been taking away from you generationally. And that's very true. We can look at the Freedman Bank, right? The first black bank that was, um, you know, that was destroyed, right? Um, From from banks, um, you know, from investment with other banks, right? The whole story. Um, We can see that this has been something, you know, Tulsa Massacre, right? Like certain communities are not allowed to acquire wealth the way white communities are. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's where banks like, you know, I think that when we look at these numbers, it it just, I mean, like racist dog whistles everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really how we, you know, as bankers and as people in finance, that this is about us repairing, right? So we shouldn't be asking certain communities for collateral. And we should actually be sitting down with the FDIC. Um, and talking to them about what we actually need in fair lending to get that done. You know, so when you first come out like, oh, well, we're going to target people, right? We're going to target black and brown for mortgage. Oh, you can't do that. Of course you can. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course you can. And I mean, when I was at, you know, when I was at Berkshire Bank, we did a small business loan for black and brown businesses that was community underwritten, zero considerations. The FDIC loved it when we told them about it. Right. So you know, you, you need to be, you need to be aware that the reason why, um, these folks don't trust these assets and they'd rather put their money in a mattress mm-hmm. is because whenever they give it to you, whenever they give it to, whenever they go into the institution, they somehow lose out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they'd rather not play. Um, then get a mortgage and lose their home because the bank wasn't returning their calls and willing to work with them because they're in a certain zip code, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, whatever it might be. So anyway, I know, I, I'm sorry, you just said that and I had to... No, no, it's okay. That also comes up a lot is generational distrust of financial institutions, you know. Um, banking and finance and mortgage has a dark history, um, you know, and... I- Yes. And, and it's hard for some people nowadays to admit because it's, you know, in a lot of ways it's changed, but you know, the effects of it have laid over for generations. It's, it's, right. you know, 
So right, and I yeah, I'm sorry. Ask your question. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, no, no. Go, go I told ahead. You go I, love, I, I told you I love. And I'm a lecturer too, girl. You're lucky. I'm not a preacher. I'd have you here all day. Um. Yes, the distrust is very, very real, right? And is something. And this also like gets into hiring, right? But say what you just said, because there was something that you just said, and then when I told myself to shut up, I lost my thought. Go ahead. uh, We have a very dark history and um, it's played over, the effects of it have uh, played over into future generations. That's right. So the dark history needs to be repaired, right? Mm -hmm. Like there needs to be some type of reconciliation, right? But it still happens today. And we saw that in 2008, Mm -hmm. right? You know, the whole, the whole scheme all right, um, of these runaway mortgages were to target to poor people, mm-hmm. all right? That was the whole idea. We could get away. We could, we now had something, we now had a place to sell these toxic assets. So, right, mm-hmm. we, we lost our risk. So let's do it, right? And who did we target, right? Um, we targeted communities that are poor, which means historically, right, they're going to be mm-hmm. overrepresented by people of color. And immigrants as well, too. And immigrants, know, right. Who right, literally you know, don't and, understand the process, may not understand what you are saying to them and then taking advantage of that. Exactly. You know, or, or yeah, or who may believe what you're saying so they don't read it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, they, they were being taken advantage of, right, as you said. And it's that posturing that still exists in financial services. I think what's very important for lenders to realize is that the way they look at these communities is one of extraction. Mm-hmm. And that really needs to shift in lending. Um, we've gotten better in the sense of we now have laws. And if you have enough people, maybe you can push back on, you know, on, on it, right? We've seen some banks, right, needed to have to pay for, you know, not getting this right. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not as violent. It's much more subtle. But banking while Black, banking while Brown, banking while an immigrant, that still very much exists. And it doesn't have to, right? There's a credit union in New Mexico that um, I'm not sure, you know, where they are now, but a few years ago, we're experimenting with banking with un- banking with people with, that don't have documentation. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can figure a lot of things out. We don't need the five C's doesn't mitigate risk. It excludes those you think are risky. Mm-hmm. Those are two different things. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, expanding, you know, we've talked about on this podcast, uh, expanding the credit box. And, you know, a lot of people look at credit in times credit tightens. And now we've uh, Fannie Mae has introduced rental history as an alternative um, and including that within your credit score to get more generational renters into the housing market. So making more moves like that. Um, is definitely essential to closing right. the homeownership Right, gap. revisiting and revisiting who needs that and who doesn't, mm-hmm. right? I think another thing that builds up the distrust is like, I don't understand how if I don't pay a credit card off, I can't get a $20,000 loan, but an ex-president can get loans all, can, can bankrupt himself seven mm-hmm. times 
and somehow has a better credit score and gets through the and ha, right gets through the five C's with character, right credit, right I, I, more than me who had trouble paying off a five thousand dollar credit card, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I think that's also part of it. Who do these five C's apply to, and how are they interpreted? And I know for myself who has a very strong, you know, relationship with my bank and with my wealth manager, I know who I call when I need to get anything done in my bank, mm-hmm. right? And I I never have a problem. Why? Because I have a larger relationship, mm-hmm. right? Like there's enough there that I'm called premium, right? Like mm-hmm. that, so so I can negotiate interest rates. I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, that, that, that I can do that, right? So this idea of, how we define character capacity, right? How we define these things um, is worth looking at, right? Because when you look at it on the face of it, there's a lot of people who, who, you know, owe a lot more money than the average everyday person who seems to just be able to get more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now I know why, right? We could get into the blah, 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 blah. But as far as on the face of it, it's understandable why people think that banks have double standards. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's so much work that that needs to be done. What a lot of people have been acknowledging and, you know, it's an undeniable fact that the mortgage industry or the finance industries are predominantly male and white. So creating more diverse, they agree that creating more diverse workplace will translate in having more diverse clients and customers. So in the beginning, you pointed out several statistics that show um, performance and profitability um, improve with a more diverse workforce. But let's get into why that is, because I'm kind of curious to see how exactly that works. And maybe it'll help people better understand rather than, you know, hearing this statistic and being like, well, uh, I don't don't really get it. So let's talk right. about why that is, you know, it, it, is it diversity of culture, diversity of mindset? What is going on there when you have a, di- a diverse workplace? All of those things, mm-hmm. right? So the power of diversity is something that we know naturally, which is why we're not allowed to marry our brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. right? We know that diverse ecosystems are the strongest, right? I mean, right now, right? We're talking about diversifying your investments, right? In a way that we've never talked about before, right? Why? Because diversity is where you see strength, right? We know that in science, we know that in biology, we know that in business. And so for those same reasons is why it works with race and women and sexual orientation and physical abilities um, for that, you know, for that exact reason, because it's different experience because it's different networks, because it's different cultures. And when you bring those together, you actually get a stronger product than you do when you just have one set, right? So that's, so that's one thing, right? Product development, right? It's going to be much stronger because the people thinking about your products are able to think about them in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. And this was the big story about Right. Why why are we selling to men? Right. When women are the right. And back in the right before mm-hmm. the Mad Men days or after the Mad Men days. Right. right. That that was. Yeah. Duh. Right. We should have women um, tell us things. Right. So we so we know that when it comes to product development. But what we also see is that diverse teams end up being 
um, end up having stronger ties and there's, and there's a greater sense of belonging. Why? Because we have to work on it, mm-hmm. right? Because we have to get to know one another, right? Because we work in different ways, right? Women led teams feel different, right? People with disavert, with, um, people with diversity, you need to take more time to understand. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just shortcutting it. So we're actually spending quality time, right? So that we understand what you mean by, you know, what you mean by a checking bundle, right? And what I mean are the same thing, not just in a product, but in who we're thinking about and who we're, who gets checks, who uses checks, right? All of that, because I'm thinking about my name, right? And you're thinking about your Nana and those are two different, right? So this idea of us needing to talk like that, Right. Mm-hmm. Just means that we're going to have stronger teams. Right. And, and you see that diverse teams. Right. Um, so now what is how does that help? Helps with retention, helps you save some money there. Right. Mm-hmm. Helps you with your competitive edge. Right. It helps you in that way. It also expands your whole team. So what you see in, in diverse teams, two plus two equals five. Right. It's almost like a, um, an acapella group. Right. And you have that like sixth note that gets created, right? Mm -hmm. Because of how they're singing together. That's what you see happening in diverse teams is because of the different ideas, because of what we have to do, right? To hear different ideas and respect different ideas. What you end up have, what ends up happening is a magic and a momentum that then I would say gets into the third piece that I would explain. Although, you know, we could cut this 5 million different ways, right? which is how do you reach your markets, mm-hmm. right? So these are folks who will know how to reach diverse markets in an authentic way, mm-hmm. right? Um, as you were saying, you know, about entering, um, you know, Latino communities, right? Um, you know, just doing that with a Spanish flyer is not going to do it, especially if you get the translation wrong because you're in a Puerto Rican community, not a Colombian community, right? right? So... That having a diverse team will help you understand that immediately. We'll know the churches, we'll know the community centers, we'll know the cultural influencers that you want to reach that are going to care about this. The other thing they'll know is the communities that are going to be excited that might, you know, that the white communities um, that are going to be excited about what you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? Because they work with them, right? They, they have all of that together. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, when we look at being able to enter new markets, competitive advantage, right? Um, and having stronger products. I mean, I mean, why, why not? You know, I, I mean, I often tell my clients, I don't think there's any, there's any other thing I could bring to you that I could say, it looks like we could increase profitability by 34%. And I would have to convince you to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. If that was a widget, if that was a widget in financial services that could make banks 34% more profitable, I wouldn't be talking to you because I'd be rich, right? Because they would have bought it without even testing it if it was priced right. Mm-hmm. Right. But then when it comes to DEI, we have to go through a whole process. I have to find the right data sets, right? I have to convince you that it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the posturing that's important for us to, you know, reflect on. But 
that that's how it looks, right? What it looks like is when you decide to put Kendall Jenner in a Black Lives Matter Pepsi ad, <laughs> that you have someone there saying, this is a bad idea, mm-hmm. right? When you say, oh my gosh, we want to, you know, we want to start entering the young professional, um, you know, college educated market. Someone says, oh, well, you know, the biggest demographic of college educated people right now are black women and women. Mm-hmm. So let's target them. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the mindset that allows you to actually finish out the 21st century strong. You know, we have about 75 more years. And if we can see where we've been heading in this first quarter, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. we got to get it together for this last three. I mean, we're going to a global economy. If we, you know, if we think that the same boardroom and the same idea rooms and the same strategy rooms are going to be able to compete with a work from home global economy, we're kidding ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? We're absolutely kidding ourselves. The majority of our economies are Asian, right? Are Latin American. I mean, let's actually, let's not be Mm -hmm. short-sighted, right? Like, let's really look at where we're heading. Um, and, and be able to respond appropriately, you know, so that, that's how it looks, Mm -hmm. um, when you actually have it working. Don't miss the largest regional mortgage show in the nation. The New England Mortgage Expo returns to Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, January 12th and 13th. See us at www.nemortgageexpo.com. Start your year with the best connections in the industry. Dozens of sessions, scores of exhibitors. It's where success is written every hour. www.nemortgageexpo.com. Perfect. I mean, I think that creates a, a really good picture of what actually is going on there instead of just, you know, hearing that statistic and kind of doubting it because you don't really know the reasons why that is exactly why you're you're bringing in all these different mindsets, different perspectives, and it's going to help you reach more people authentically. And since yeah, you already help brought, you yeah. miss the mistakes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Big, big oopsies, you know, uh, that could embarrass yourself and your company. Um, so, since you already kind of brought this up a few times, let's talk about Gen Z. Um, A lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of people in the industry know that they're coming up, they're going to be the new home buyers, um, and they're wondering how to reach them. Um, But yet still, a lot of the industry is full of Gen X, uh, baby boomers, people of that generation. They don't even know what social media sites to get on. Um, They don't really know the audience or the clientele that they're looking at right now. So let's introduce them um, to Gen Z, who Gen Z is. And like you said, they are extremely diverse. They have a completely different mindset um, as buyers um, in general. So I, I thought this was this was um, an interesting find. Gen Z considers themselves tech dependent, entrepreneurial, pragmatic, since they grew up um, around the the Great Recession, aware of social issues and highly aware of the power of diversity and importance of inclusion in the workplace. So that on that last point, um, there are stock analysts that say when you know Gen Z and younger generations are investing in companies, they pay attention to ones that are environmentally conscious. So a social issue they care about, they'll put more money down on that company. Um, and I think you'll see the same thing with lending and with who they choose to work with in the future. And like we said, they want to get into the market early. So looking good to this generation um, is extremely important. Um, And the fact that they are tech dependent, you know, 
There are some companies that work solely through brokers and have a relationship di- dynamic with their clientele and they rely on that. And then there's companies that are very tech driven. If you do not connect with them on the emotional um, level, on a relationship level, they will go to um, push button, get mortgage instead. So they Absolutely. will go the different route. So, I mean, tell me what you think. And of they are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like they, they are already go- going on the different route. Um, yes. I mean, you know, when, when I think about future generations, I think about that Bill Gates saying, right. Um, banking will be necessary. Banks will not. Um, and I think, you know, FinTech is the future, right. Even if you're a bank, right. Like, you know, um, branches, Take so long to become profitable now, right? That that the physical presence is becoming more and more expensive. Now the relationship is still necessary, and you know the Gen Zs, even millennials, right, and and younger, they are fine building a relationship on a tech platform, right? But what they want to know is who you are, mm-hmm. and this is why things like ESG, right, you having a good answer for social issues is so important, and again. This is where it's not just about, oh, well, we should include, you know, immigrant families and black and brown families, but it's about we're going through the largest generational wealth transfer in the U.S. And guess what? It's being transferred to millennials and Gen Z's, Mm -hmm. right? It's the all this baby boomer money is going to Gen Z's who think very differently than their parents did, right? Mm -hmm. And you see that in like resource generation, right? And these groups that are coming up of generationally wealthy kids right? Who are preparing themselves to give away their money, to demand different things from their invest, you know, from their investors, right? To look at things in a different way, right? They, they want to play in investing in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, They want a different kind of portfolio than their folks did, right? And so banks are going to have to understand that and are going to have to respond to that because if not, fintechs will, right? I mean, you, SoFi, how genius, help people do their student loans. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to bank you for everything. Now, right. Mm-hmm. You know, someone, um, you know, you look at rocket mortgage, right. You, you look at different now, are there any that have really gotten this movement thing? Right. I mean, I think, you know, I think chime, right. Does some environmental stuff, right. SoFi does some, but it really is an open, you know, an open playbook right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and a place where, you know, I think, I, I know we're looking forward to playing in it more. You know, we work with a lot of traditional banks right now. Um, and fintech is something that we're very interested in because we do think it's what banking is going to become, whether that's whether the back office is Bank of America, right, or Chime. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the other thing is there's also a lot of predatory things happening in fintech, right, that banks in some ways can't do or or whatever, you know. But I think this idea of movement is what, these younger generations are looking for, and it's really going to be a unique value prop for the banks who can get it right. Right now, banks don't know how to do it and they don't know how to sell it. So it comes off as inauthentic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, George Floyd happened. So we're now going to give $30 billion to the blacks and browns and the poors, right? Like that, okay, great, sure, sure, sure. But that's not going to be enough, right? Like folks actually want to see what are you doing, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is a place where community banks actually have an edge, right? Because big banks are going to write a check to it. Mm-hmm. Same thing that they do with tech, 
right? They're going to write a check to it. Community banks can't do that, right? Smaller regional banks can't do that. But what they can do is they can relationship the hell out of it. And Mm -hmm. that's where people then believe that you actually are doing what you're doing, you know? Lastly, what I'll say is, I think to show you're authentic, it has to be more than charity and it has to be more than special projects, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have a special loan reserve, that's a million dollars for X, that's a great start, but you can't actually sell that as a movement, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think um, what I found in working with the banks that we work with, we start by building products with the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and the community ends up starting our word of mouth campaign that we then lean into and leverage and, you know, put some ad dollars behind or whatever it might be. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, you know, that's doing it authentically is really, really important. But, you know, you're absolutely right. Gen Zers, millennials, they will turn to fintechs or they will just keep their money, you know, um, in a place where they can have influence. Um, And especially with the generational wealth transfer, you know, I mean, you see it with BlackRock, you see it with State Street, um, you know, and I can say State Street Full Disclosure is our client and we're working with them them on this stuff globally. And, um, you know, retention, hiring is a part of it, external is a part of it. And we're sort of getting all the plates spinning at once so that it can be authentic when we're talking to the clients who are looking at investing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there is some power behind uh, the relationship dynamic. You know, if your superpower isn't, I have an app, you know, I don't have an app where you can do all these things, but we can have a relationship and I can talk to you face to face and answer all your questions. And that's really important, especially to the younger generation who have lots and lots of questions. Um, An attribute of theirs is entrepreneurial. So they're asking different questions than their parents ever would. And they're asking more questions than their parents would. Their parents would get a job. They look at the house, maybe ask a few questions, but that's really it. They're not really looking at it as an investment, just a place to live. Whereas this generation, more of the entrepreneurial spirit, more of looking at it as an asset, as an investment. And where am I going from here after I get this house? So what do you think about honing down that educational um, standpoint and coming at this with an educational uh, point of view? Um, And how do you, you know, what are some tips and tricks for establishing that relationship as coming off as trustworthy and um, as authoritative? Work on yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that banks have to work on their culture um, and their posturing. And it first starts with believing that these communities have value. And I don't think a lot of bankers think that, right? I think they think of them as they're going to, you know, they're, we're going to have to, um, you know, that this is more risky, right? I think bankers see these communities as risky and that's just not true. The stats show that's just not true, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But that's the first thing because if you don't trust me, I'm going to know it. I'm going to know it and I'm not going to trust my banker, right? Um, That's the first thing. The second thing is that you need to be where I'm at. Right. And, and you need to be in circles that I trust. So, you know, you doing a service day in a black community for Martin Luther King Day is not enough. Right. Like I want to see your bankers. I mean, I'll speak to again, to use myself as an example. 
um, you know, my bankers that I bank with live in my neighborhood. So when I go into the bank, they talk to me about, you know, the construction that's happening or the water main that broke or right, whatever it is, which makes me, cause I'm, ve- I'm very untrusting of that. You know, like I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I'm unconvinced on capital, right? Like, so, um, it's, it's something that I need that relationship or else I have anxiety and all the other trauma that I have from being a, you know, an, Black American, right? When it comes to money. Um, And so making sure that not only that your bank is writing checks and that, you know, your bank is showing up, but that you're, when I would look at hiring bankers, I wouldn't necessarily look at, do they have any banking experience? Because that can be taught, Mm -hmm. right? I would look at it from a relationship driven approach. And like when we work with our, um, you know, with our banks, and and even our our investors, you know, we look at folks who are in the economic development field because they get finance, they get investment. Mm-hmm. But what they've done is they're working from the community side of it. So they're going to have all the relationships, but they're also going to know why all of your products don't work mm-hmm. for the communities you're trying to reach, you know? So part of being authentic is who you're hiring. And sometimes hiring people who have been really successful in banking may have them not as close to the problems you're actually trying to solve just because they're a woman or they're a person of color. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes we can be tone deaf at our own problems because we've been blessed enough to have transcended some of the race stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and speaking of, you know, building trust, another thing that Gen Z does, if they're learning about any topic, whether it's what loan to get or a new hobby that they've they've got, the first thing they do is they go on YouTube, um, you know, and if someone, you know, if you claim to be an expert and they find you somewhere, they're going to look you up. Do you have a YouTube channel? Do you have a TikTok? Do you have an Instagram? Do you have a Facebook? What do you post on there? And, you know, that's a whole nother way of marketing. If your if your company doesn't have an app or doesn't market like that, you yourself can market like that. And now some people in the industry, like we said, they're Gen X, they're baby boomers, they're a little bit more uncomfortable or they don't necessarily use social media right. Um, and they might be attracting not the right audience or not as a diverse audience as they would like. Um, so let's talk about Perhaps some, I don't know if you've worked um, on social media presence um, with the companies, maybe a bit, um, some tips and tricks for how to come off on social media, what are things you maybe should avoid saying or avoid posting and, and where, what's the line there? Oh, you know, and I don't want to, I mean, I think like the, so authenticity of social media rhythms, right? Like of understanding how you have a conversation on social media, I think is really important. And this is where if you're, I mean, as a Gen Xer, I don't touch my social media, right? Like I, I don't touch it. Um, I have a Gen Zer that touches it. And um, actually I'm going to have to jump off because I have, I had a meeting with her at three, but I told her okay. I was going to be late, but we talk about the stuff so I can give her my Gen X you know, well, this is what we should do. And then she makes it sound pithy and and all of those things. So the Mm -hmm. first off is if you're doing it or if you're, you know, marketing person is doing it and if they're not active on social media, if they don't have their own personal TikTok channel, they shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. I don't have my own personal TikTok channel. I'm not doing it. 
right? Like, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you do get on and you're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, have your ERGs participate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so often you see like, you know, it's like the thoughts and prayers, right? Or, you know, like the Juneteenth holiday, right? Like, and it just comes off as really inauthentic, mm-hmm. really inauthentic, you know? And so I, I think it's, um, you know, it's just really important that if you're going to talk about the Juneteenth holiday, that um, you talk with your Black ERG about how you want to talk about it. And maybe it's even the Black ERG gets to post, right? So they actually get to take over your social media that day, mm-hmm. right? But again, do it like how the social media folks do it, right? Like you have your influencers, um, you know, if you're talking about mortgages, have someone explain it, right? In a TikTok way, um, in a way that's pithy, that's funny. I, I think companies that do the best social media are ones that are able to grab that humor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so, and I know with banking, like, you know, we're not really known for our humor. Right. But um, you, you need to find that out. The thing that you don't want to do is to be cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we honor Martin Luther King for his sacrifice um, on this Martin Luther King day. No, 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 no. Right. Like, because we, we don't want, that's not what we're asking for, right? We're asking for you to honor what he was asking for. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't asking for a statue. He wasn't asking for a day. He wouldn't want any of that stuff. He was asking things like universal basic income, that the things like that were in his speeches. So recognize that context, right? Recognize how, you know, for Indigenous American Month, right? This month that we just ended, right? You want to be talking about the Supreme Court case, right? You don't want to be talking about, you know, uh, the American Indian who, you know, helped in that. You, you know what I mean? Like, like you want to talk about how the community is receiving their experience now. So it's hard for me to like get into specifics. And so I'm sorry if that was like a little amorphous of an answer, but you want it to come from that community that's within your bank. So if you're trying to do a mortgage to immigrant communities, then you should have an immigrant working group in your marketing team mm-hmm. that's working on that social media. And the great thing is if you're working with a younger people doing that, they'll already ask those people. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh my God, well, you know, I'm going to call Sue and Joe because they're, you know, running our immigrant luncheon. And so I want to see if I can do social media at their luncheon, right? That they're already going to think like that. Mm-hmm. And how to create that content is going to come very naturally. Now, where where you're where you may find pushback is in your compliance, mm-hmm. right? Because are there certain things that you know that need disclosures on, right? And this is where it becomes important for you, your compliance people to want to figure out how to make it work and not just set down the social media people saying that they can't post anything like that. And then so then they just go back to be like first time home buyers, you know, like this link, right? Like you you, you don't want to kill, you don't want your CYA culture to kill the momentum of a social media campaign because, you know, the, the CYA around regulation is, um, will kill the, your momentum 
with anything you're doing in DE&I, but also on social media. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I, I know you said that you have to run, but I do want to get to this um, last question that um, talks about the how, the, uh, you know, the higher up the ladder in the finance mortgage industry, the more white and male it, it becomes. So, you know, as much as important as as it is to uh, create diversity on the sales level, those people that are customer and client facing and how great that is for your company. Um, like we said, Gen Z, these younger generations are very aware of also what's going on at the top. Um, and they're very cognizant of it. So what I want to ask you, do you think that the, you know, the lack of diversity at the top, is it bias or is it lack of encouragement, um, you know, for minorities and for women? Both ends. I mean, I think it's so why I think there's a lack of diversity on the top is laziness mm-hmm. first off, you know, and everyone has their selection plans, right? So like, you know that this group is going to be what it is for the next 10 years, right? I mean, you have to, right? It's a regulation. (laughs) Then you have your succession planning once you get that high up, right? So how does that look, right? Um, But, you know, there's a certain amount of laziness and also discomfort, right? So, you know, I I promised Joe that he was going to be the next one, right? I've been working with him and now, you know, he's on this path and yes, right? It's, five years to my retirement and Katie's doing great and Katie could be, but Joe and I have already talked about this, right? And we were talking about it before we cared about women. So sorry, we'll try to get it next time, right? Like this idea of it not being a big enough priority to cause discomfort is the first thing. The second thing is I think shareholders, board members, and C-suite execs still do not believe in everything we just went through around the profitability and the benefits of DE&I. Mm-hmm. So they're still more comfortable with, um, you know, with picking someone that they know, right? Someone that feels familiar to them, right? You're, you're changing a major seat here, right? I mean, you got to do a 10K on it, right? Like, like, like this is major stuff. And so, well, who has the most seniority? Who's going to be the most respected? Oh, well, Joe has been in banking for 35 years, right? Like we're going to, we're going to go with him, Mm -hmm. right? And folks don't know how to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that's a reason, right? And all of that also is because of structural and institutional bias, right? It's You can have no racist in the room and still have racism, Mm -hmm. right? Because of the structures and things like redlining, right? Like, um, and, and, you know, policy and things like seniority in your culture. And, right. Um, you know, I also think that white, straight white men right now feel that there's a target on the back mm. and they feel that they're becoming irrelevant. And I want to, I want to respect that that's how they feel. Um, I want to appreciate that's how they feel. And I think what's important, you know, for them is, you know, they, they're comfortable in these old boy networks, right? Oh, we go play golf. We grab a beer. We, you know, we go sit in the sauna, right? <laughs> like we, like, this is the stuff we do. And that's no longer the stuff, mm-hmm. right? That, that That's not going to be the way deals are made in 30 years are going to be, you know, sitting in a sauna with a towel around you, right? Like, and so I do think that this feeling of irrelevancy is really hard for them, you know, and that this is a place where, they still can be a hundred percent of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's easy then to let the excuses become barriers mm-hmm. rather than become problems that need to be solved, you know? 
Um, so I think all of those reasons, right? Like, and, you know, we, we can look at Europe, right? And the example in Europe when the, you know, they said all publicly traded companies had to have 50% women um, on their boards, right? And what was the first thing that the boards did is they brought their wives, mm-hmm. right? Like, so, you know, I, I can't say that these, you know, that these C-suites, that these boards, right, that these higher level executives and positions of power are not, re- you know, they, they do have some culpability, right? They do have some responsibility. And I think a lot of their implicit bias, they justify that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's considered good business practices. But the problem is, is that the good business practices that they learned and that they knew was when greed was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You that's know, we're, we're just not there. Yeah, that's interesting. And the way you put it, you know, I'm leaving my co- I've never been, you know, a company owner, but I imagine that, you know, that's your baby. Your company is your baby. And I, you have to hand it off to somebody you trust. And as much as you would like it to go to a woman or a minority, you're going to pick the person that you feel most familiar with. So in order to make any sort of change or disruption to the industry, you would have to end up disrupting your own business, which is easier said than done. Right. And your own comfortability, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you and Joe can go to the bar, you can you know, you can meet late night, you can go to, you know, whatever country, right? You can go to the Harvard club and, right? If I'm not working with Katie, oh, that, that's a different dynamic, mm-hmm. right? I, I Can I grab drinks late night with Kate, right? Like, I don't even know how to think about that, right? How does Katie, and rather than saying, well, I just have to ask her mm-hmm. and I just have to get comfortable, maybe, you know, maybe Katie can grab a drink because her husband helps with the kids. Maybe Katie doesn't have kids, mm-hmm. right? Maybe Kate, right? Who knows? But the fact of the matter is, is you being a woman, boom, right? I mean, my jokes now may have to change. Right. Right. And you may be great, Katie, but I feel more comfortable with Joe. So I know I'm going to be more honest with Joe, which is then going to set Joe up for success in a way that I won't set Katie up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how it ends up. I mean, you know, it's all unconscious, right? Like, but when you start, you know, like when we work with clients and when we start asking the whys, right, you, as you, you ended up, the word you use, Katie, is so important. I feel mm-hmm. better. I feel more confident with me making this decision. And that's ultimately why I'm making it. And that is a valid reason for an executive to make a decision. But we just have to be honest that that might not align then with DE&I. Mm-hmm. His feelings can be biased. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, yeah, that's the place to start is identifying the why in those scenarios. Why am I uncomfortable with this? And why can't I relate to this person? And why am I not reaching this demographic? They're all, they can get to an uncomfortable level and you might realize some things about yourself, but that's just really opening up new doors for you. And that's what education is. Ask your kids. Yeah. Like this is literally, you know, like I had this one situation and it was hilarious. And one of our clients was like, I just don't know. Like these numbers just don't seem right to me. And I said, well, you know, maybe go and like ask, you know, ask, ask some of your, you know, ask your kid, right? Like, like ask them what they think about these Gen Z numbers that were pulling and da, 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 da. The next meeting, they were like, yeah, so we need to do a lot more around them, right? Like yeah. it was evident that their kids were like, yeah, dad. 
right? Like, this is what I'm looking for. I'm entering the workforce now and I'm looking for this as a white woman, as your kid, right? Or as a Mm -hmm. white guy, as your kid, right? Like, so, you know, this is a a place where like the EQ part of your management style needs to be strengthened, needs to be expanded. And things that you, you know, the, the idea that high performers are the best managers, again, 1985 is calling right? They want their strategy back. Like that is not true. We know that, right? High performers just make you a high performer. It doesn't make you a good manager, right? So that kind of self-reflection starts with you talking to your heart and brain. Like I'm about to challenge some beliefs that made me successful, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And what, what does that mean for me? So um, anyway, we could do a whole podcast. Yep on this specifically part two absolutely we totally should because i would um because we actually have this process it's called the three l's and i would love to actually get into how we talk about managers getting in the right posture Mm -hmm. so that they can self-reflect in a way that doesn't um that doesn't that doesn't feel damaging to them you know because i think the final thing i'll say here is that you know, you're an executive you're a manager you know everything right like your jokes are the funniest so to all of a sudden need to catch up and play catch up in real time, um, how do you do that as privately as possible? Mm-hmm. And and that's something we like to help people do, you know, because to play catch up publicly sometimes can be hard for a manager. They're yeah. not used to being in that position. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, well, we'll let you go. We'll definitely, I'll definitely want to get back in touch to do a part two and really dive into all this. It's really a mixture. When we're talking about diversity and inclusion, it's it's like a psychology experiment. You're a lot of it delves into psychology. And you know, that's fast. I, I call think myself a sharp one. Yeah. Because that's <laughs> why I feel like, you know, we're on this crazy journey together. And it's like psychology, it's fitness, it's capacity, right? Like, but it's that psychology part that, you know, I need to be able to read to be like, are we going to be able to walk to this next stage? And how do I get you to, you know, what is, what is the oxygen I have to get in you so mm-hmm. that we can keep climbing up? Absolutely. Absolutely. So definitely we'll want you back for part two. Let's uh, everyone digest what we went over. I feel like we went over a lot of things very quickly and I really want people to digest everything that we went over. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for, for educating us and telling us what you do. Um, we support you here at Gated Communities, what you do. And uh, so thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll definitely be hearing from you again. Well, I hope so, because I love the conference and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much, Katie. You guys are great. Awesome. Thank you. This is Gated Communities, hosted by me, Katie Jensen, for the Mortgage News Network. All episodes are produced by T.G. Kudem Peror and Matthew Mullins. Our head of multimedia is Mike Savino, and our editor-in-chief is Christine Stewart. Make sure you subscribe to Gated Communities so you get future episodes, and be sure to rate and review it so others can find it. The song you heard at the beginning was Wild Side by Saint Society, and the song you hear now is Will You Dance With Me by La La Nia. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media. OCN is the largest producer of events for mortgage professionals. We bring the action to you. See when we'll be in your area. Just visit us at www.originatorconnectnetwork.com. That's www.originatorconnectnetwork.com.